0: Invite you to get your Bible out and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians and chapter 1 and verses 27 to 30. Philippians 1 and verses 27 to 30. I'll read it, and then we can pray together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're seated again at your table. It feels like, to me, it feels like we were just here. This week has flown by, and here we are again. I don't know what kind of week everybody in the room has had, whether it's been a good one or a challenging one. I know know that for all of us it's been mixed with blessings and joys and trials as well, because every week uh, in this world is a mix of those things. But now here we are, seated at your table, seated under the, the authority of your Holy Word. And that is not a mixed blessing, that is an absolute blessing. And so I pray now that you would speak to us through your Word, help us to understand it, help us to believe it, and help us to Apply it to our lives. In your name, Amen. Our passage this morning contains the very first imperative in the book of Philippians. Paul commands us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not a suggestion. That is not an optional add-on to your life of discipleship. That is not something that Paul is proposing that we consider. It is a command from God to us, given through the Apostle Paul, live life worthy of the gospel. That's the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, so I'll say it again, and if that's all you hear, you heard enough. Live life worthy of the gospel. That's for all of us. If you've been following this little series that we're doing in Philippians, then you know that Paul's Paul's packed a lot into this letter. Uh, Prior to this command, which is only coming at the end of chapter 1, Paul has already given an introduction. He has expressed his love for the Philippians. He has prayed a prayer for the Philippians. He's updated them on his own personal situation, explaining that physically he is still in chains. As he writes the letter, but spiritually, he is rejoicing in the Lord. He is rejoicing because the gospel is going forward, and he is trusting God in all circumstances. And then after all of that, he gives this exhortation. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And in some ways, that command is what the whole letter of Philippians is all about. Paul has described how he himself is living a life worthy of the gospel, And then he basically says, look, this gospel-centered, gospel-worthy life that I'm living, it's not just for you to read about. I want you to live this kind of life as well. I want you to live lives worthy of the gospel, just like I've been describing how I'm living life worthy of the gospel. Now, for those of us who are accustomed to thinking of the Apostle Paul as kind of like the Michael Jordan of the Christian faith, right? Like, it, it, it would be tough for us to think that we could ever obey this command to live life worthy of the gospel. Well, of course Paul lived life worthy of the gospel, but us? Right? That, that would be like Michael Jordan. I know I'm a little old, but I trust that people know who that is. Michael Jordan, it would be like, it would be like him commanding us to take off from the free throw line and do a reverse dunk. Right? It, it, it ain't gonna happen. Right? In, in, uh, in 1992, I was in high school, and uh, the Gatorade Corporation began exhorting me to be like Mike. I don't know, maybe that, maybe that commercial didn't make it up here, but it was on all the time on TV, to be like Mike. Sometimes I dream that he is me i am not seeing any heads nodding, so apparently that wasn't here. Anyways, I was supposed to be like Mike. That was a command I took very seriously and tried to obey, right? But here's the problem. I'm, I'm a little skinny white guy who can't jump. And so I can't be like Mike. I, I tried, and I failed. And no matter how much Gatorade I drank, I, I'm telling you, I tried. And I simply could not obey the command to be like Mike. I don't have it in me. I'm not like Mike. Now in some ways, at first glance, the book of Philippians, when I read it, it feels like that commercial all over again. Right? I'm having flashbacks to high school. Paul is doing the spiritual equivalent of jumping from the free throw line and doing a reverse slam dunk. He's saying, hey, look, I'm in chains. I'm possibly going to be executed And yet, I'm rejoicing. You know why I'm rejoicing? Because the gospel is going forward. And you know what? I don't even care if I live or if I die because I love Jesus so much. If I die, I get to go be with him. If I live, I get to keep serving him here. It's a win-win. Now, my initial response to that is something like, Hey, Paul, that's great for you. I'm glad I'm watching. I'm glad I have a front row seat to watch that spiritual slam dunk that you're doing. I'm a fan. It's impressive. You keep it up, you do that, and I'll be the spectator. But then we get to verse 27, and we get a command to be like Paul. All of us. Paul Paul is obviously living an amazing life worthy of the gospel, and now you and I are commanded to live a life like that. Okay, well, how can we? What does that even mean? Well, thankfully, Paul describes exactly what he means in the verses that follow. And as we look at what it means to live life worthy of the gospel, hopefully we'll see how it is possible, by God's grace, to obey that command. It, it, it really is. Paul highlights three things when he he fleshes this out. He says that it is standing firm with one spirit. It is striving side by side for the gospel. And it is not being frightened by anything. Okay, I want to talk briefly about each one of those three things. But before I do, we just need to think a little bit more about this command, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The command literally, if you read it literally in the original language, says this. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's important. Paul grounds the command in the fact of their citizenship. Right? And he's not talking about their citizens of the city of Philippi. not talking about their citizens of the Roman Empire. He's framing his exhortation in terms of the fact that their citizenship, their real true citizenship, is not ultimately in Philippi, but that it is already established right now. It is established in heaven right now. He says that again, explicitly, later in in chapter 3 in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the call to live lives worthy of the gospel, the call that enables us to to transcend the cares of this world and to live a gospel-centered life is rooted in the very fact that this here is not our ultimate home. We're here now, but our citizenship is already established in heaven, right now. We're here as pilgrims on earth, passing through the earth on our way to our real, true, eternal home. And that fact enables us to live lives worthy of the gospel here, now. That's the big difference between the command to be like Mike and the command to be like Paul. I can't can't be like Michael Jordan because I'm not equipped to be like Michael Jordan. I just don't have it in me. But believe it or not, you and I can be like Paul because the same Savior has saved us and the same Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we are servants of the same king. And we are headed to the same destination. And we are citizens of the same heavenly country. And if we don't believe that, then we haven't fully understood the gospel. And if we haven't fully understood and embraced the gospel, then how could we expect to live lives worthy of the gospel? It reminds me, as I think about this citizenship theme that, that pops up in Philippians, it reminds me of when my wife Marco took the step to become a citizen in the United States. It was a big day for us. Um, our whole family that day, we got up early, we went downtown, we went to the big fancy courthouse, there was a ceremony. It, it just so happened to be September 11th, that, that was the day, and that's a significant day. For Americans and uh, during the, the ceremony she was required to affirm her allegiance to the United States of America. Such a, such a proud moment for me and uh, <laughs> she basically had to stand up and say I was a citizen of Canada but now I am publicly going on record to say that my national allegiance is with the United States and I am committed to the well-being of this country. Later, somehow she kind of undid that commitment. (laughs) Because when we moved back here, she pulled out her Canadian passport. She hung on to (laughs) it. and uh, she resumed her Canadian citizenship. Canada is much more accepting of dual citizenship than those paranoid Americans. But, uh, I'm allowed to say that. Anyways, anyways, what, what Marco did that day, when she became an American citizen, that is in some ways a picture of all of us when we receive the free gifts of salvation in Jesus Christ. We become members of God's household. We become citizens of God's kingdom. This earth, good as it is, is not where our ultimate citizenship is. We are passing through here. You and I will not be able to live lives worthy of the gospel if our hearts are given to this world. If this world is what we live for, just this world, then our allegiance to the true king will be compromised and we will always be hedging our bets. Living with our allegiance split between this world and heaven. But this text is saying, make sure your identity, recognize that your identity is firmly rooted in heaven. Citizens of heaven, understand that your ultimate citizenship, your ultimate allegiance, is established there. That is the only way that you'll be able to say along with Paul, for me to live as Christ to die is gain. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. We're, we're here now. We need to engage here now. This world is created by God and it is good. And by all means, we should enjoy our time here. We should use our time here to serve others. We should use our time here to proclaim the gospel and to spread God's kingdom on earth. Yes. Right? That's our calling. But we don't want to settle in here. We want to remember that our identity is in Christ and we want to remember where our real citizenship is. And that'll help us to be like Paul. All right, so now Paul has laid the foundation. He's grounded the exhortation in our citizenship and then he goes on to give three marks of how this should look in the local church when we, citizens of heaven, unite and form a local church body. Right? This this church is an outpost of heaven. Right? It's so important to notice that these characteristics of gospel-worthy lives, they're not directed at individuals. Right? Paul's not speaking to individuals. He wrote this letter to the whole church at Philippi. right? Plural pronouns here. An essential part of living a gospel-worthy life is doing it in the context of fellowship with other believers. We, as a church, live lives worthy of the gospel. Paul says that we should be standing firm in one spirit. We should be striving side by side with one mind. And we should not be frightened of our opponents. That's what he says. That is a picture of a healthy, God-glorifying, gospel-worthy church. Two things we should do, one thing we should not do. We should stand firm, we should strive forward side by side, and we should not be frightened. Okay? Just talk about each of those briefly. First, verse 27, Paul says, we should stand firm in one spirit. We, the church, them, the church of Philippi, we, the church uh, at Ebenezer, we should stand firm in one spirit. A healthy church is marked by people who are standing firm in one spirit, united with one another, by the holy spirit right one body standing firm that phrase standing firm means holding fast together to the unshakable truth of the gospel right helping each other keep a grip on the gospel taking refuge in the gospel during times of pain and persecution and even suffering hardship in order to defend the truth of the gospel that was the situation in Philippi, that's what Paul was referring to in Philippi. Paul was writing in chains. He was writing to a church that was being persecuted for the truth. And he was saying, stand firm. Don't stand firm alone. Stand firm together. Right? When I think of that, uh, you know, I love church history. I think of the Reformation. I think of the churches that were being persecuted during the Reformation. I think of those churches who, were, who, who had rediscovered the gospel and who were proclaiming the truth that you cannot earn special favor from God by your good works. Even though God wants us to do good works, you cannot earn special favor from God by your good works, and you certainly can't earn special favor from God by purchasing an indulgence from the Pope. Right? At the time, I know you know the story, the church was selling pieces of paper, they were called indulgences. If you bought one, it would shorten your time in purgatory, it would cover for some of your sins, or you could buy it on behalf of someone else and get them sprung out of purgatory quicker. And uh, the Reformers began saying, surely that's not right. Something feels off here. In fact, that is the opposite of what the Bible teaches about grace and forgiveness. Right? Well, that didn't go over so well in Rome. Uh, they had a big bill to pay, having just built St. Peter's. Uh, Michelangelo didn't come cheap. They had, a lot, of, they had a, a, a lot of money to raise to pay off bills, and indulgen- selling indulgences was a, was a major source of revenue. So in some cases, people who uh, rebelled against the indulgences ended up being burned at the stake for saying that God's grace alone received through faith alone, is the only thing that can secure your forgiveness and reconciliation to God. They stood firm in one spirit. They basically said, look, you can burn us if you like. We'd rather you didn't, but if you're going to burn us, we just want you to know that the truth is the truth. And the truth is not going to change. And we're not going to stop saying it. You can try to shut us up if you want, but this is the gospel and we're gonna pro- proclaim it. And the, the, the song, that, kind of the theme of the Reformation was this song, A mighty fortress is our God, right? Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. And uh, it, 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 it expresses that so well, right? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still and his kingdom is forever. That song written by Martin Luther, that was like the anthem of the Reformation. Uh, Let me read for you how one historian describes it. He says, it was sung in all the churches of Saxony, often against the protests of the local priests. It was sung in the streets. It comforted the hearts of the leaders of the Reformation. It was sung by poor Protestant immigrants, emigrants on their way into exile, and by martyrs at their death. It is woven into the web of the history of Reformation times. And it became the true national hymn of Protestant Germany. Have you ever noticed that that song does not work as a solo? All all the pronouns in that song are plural. A mighty fortress is our God. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. If it was just I, if it was just me, I'd tremble. But when it's we, we tremble not. It's easier not to tremble when you're standing together in one spirit with other like-minded believers. True biblical fellowship in the name of Jesus is a powerful thing. Don't underestimate it. Together, we stand firm in one spirit. Together, we stand firm in one spirit. That's the first point. That's the first uh, a way that we live gospel-worthy lives. Point number two, Paul says that a life worthy of the gospel means striving side by side for the faith of the gospel with one mind. So that's related to the first point. but Here's the difference. In the first point, we're standing firm, immovable, grounded in our faith because we're grounded in the Spirit. The second mark implies forward movement. We're striving forward, side by side, Advancing the purposes of the gospel. That's what healthy churches do. That's what gospel-worthy churches do. So I, when I thought about that, that, that's not my nature. I'm not like that. I'm, I'm just not. Uh, I'll give you an example. I don't know how many of you have played the game Risk. Uh, I struck out with my Michael Jordan commercial. Maybe some of you have played Risk, though. It's, uh, maybe not. Uh, I, I played it lots when I was a kid uh, with my two brothers growing up. Uh, it's basically, it's, it's, a, it's a war game, board game. You put your armies on your countries that you occupy. You fight with the other countries, you try to take over the world. Did this every week with my brothers. Um, as a boy, I was terrible at the game. Because I, I never, I never wanted to attack anybody. Right? I would just sit there. let my armies build up in a pile. I would organize them, make, put them into designs. To me, that was great. That was the game. Let's put armies on the board and put, and put them into the little designs. Imagine what they would be like marching around. That's it. That's the game to me. All right? Let's just build up our borders so that we can all feel secure and, and do nothing. Eventually, one of my brothers would get fed up with me and would attack me, and I would lose. Or often, they would, they would together, combine forces, and kill me. And I would lose. Listen, you can't win that game by just sitting there. That's what, I, that's what my brothers taught me. You have to strive forward. Right? That's the whole point of the game. If you don't strive forward, you lose. Okay? Now, here I am, a grown man, but in a lot of ways, I'm also still that child. Right? I'm, not, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a striver. <laughs> I'm not the kind of guy that strives forward. I'm not a risk taker. Uh, I am a stay-at-home kind of guy, and I like it. And in some ways, that's okay. But that is not the way that we are supposed to be thinking about our calling as a church. Uh, I think many of you know, I, I, taught a, I taught a course at King's last semester. The name of the course that was given to me was uh, the, history of Chris, the global history of Christianity since 1500. Um, so when this, one of the themes that I focused on in that course was that, you, when you look at history, the history of the church, the history of the church since 1500, one of the themes of that is geographical growth over those 500 years. During that time, during that 500 year span, the church went from being mostly Western, European, religious movement, to being a global phenomenon. Today, most followers of Jesus Christ no longer live in the Western world. Uh, We're a minority within the church, and that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. The way that happened is by the church striving forward, bringing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to places where the name of Christ hadn't been named, proclaiming that message and planting churches there. That's what Paul did and that's what the church continues to do, striving forward with the message of Jesus Christ. Now, for the sake of honesty and accuracy, we need to acknowledge that sometimes the way that the church uh, engaged in missions was very unchristlike and insensitive and sometimes oppressive. Uh, not always, but sometimes it was. We can own that. We can learn from that. But the point is, built into the fabric of the church from the very beginning was the idea that the church is not stagnant. I, there, there, there's, always a, there's always a tendency for the church to just settle in, right? When I, when I think about that, I think of Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember this scene? And all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses and Je- like show up, and they're, and they're glowing, and Jesus is there. And Peter's like, this is great. Let's just set up tents and camp out here. Let's never go anywhere. Let's just hang out here. Turn it into a camping trip. And I think that idea, that attitude, often shows up in the church where we're like, this is great. We're good. Let's just, let's just settle in and stay put. Right? We're happy here. That, that, that's always a tendency within the church. But, but what Paul is saying here is that that's not what healthy churches do. Healthy churches don't just sit back and stockpile resources. Healthy churches move. Healthy churches strive forward. They proclaim the message of the gospel. They send people out. They plant churches, more outposts of the kingdom of God along the way. And We're told that's what healthy churches do. They move forward. And we're told that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that metaphor. That's a metaphor Jesus gave us. Uh, if, if you ever thought about it, you j- you just keep in mind, gates don't move. Right? So, so it, it, when you think about that metaphor, you can't picture the church kind of like huddled up in the corner and being attacked by the gates of hell, and the gates of hell are not prevailing against us. Gates don't attack Gates don't move. The metaphor pictures the church on the move, banging into those gates of hell. And the gates of hell don't prevail against us. We crash right through them with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming that message all over the world. All right, well, those are the two positive marks of a, of a God-glorifying, gospel-worthy church. Right? We, they stand firm in one spirit, united together, and they strive forward with one mind. The emphasis is on unity. We do these things together, one spirit, one mind. One more mark. It's a negative thing. It's something we ought not to do. Paul writes in verse 28, the Philippians ought not to be frightened about anything by their opponents. Remember, Paul's in jail. He's not in an actual jail, but he's chained up for his faith, and the persecution is beginning to come to the church in Philippi as well. And so Paul writes and he tells them that in order to live lives worthy of the gospel, they ought not to be frightened by this persecution. That sounds like a harsh thing to say unless we understand the kind of fear that Paul is talking about because the Bible makes reference to different kinds of fear. We are supposed to fear the Lord. That's a, that's a good, healthy kind of fear. Uh, we we read those accounts of Jesus in the garden uh, on the night he was betrayed and we see evidence that Jesus was afraid at the thought of having the wrath of God poured out on him. We know that wasn't inappropriate, that wasn't sinful because Jesus is perfect and he never sinned. (laughs) Where was I? Right? Fear, fear itself is not necessarily sinful, right? Jesus felt fear. That's, he, he never sinned. So Paul, Paul is not saying fear is always sinful. He's talking about a particular kind of fear that is. The word translated frightened here in our Bibles has a very specific meaning. In fact, this is the only place in the whole Bible where this word for fear is used. The only place. The word is used in Greek literature to refer to the fear of a frightened horse. Kay? That's the kind of fear that Paul is telling Philippians to avoid. The fear of a spooked, frightened horse is not rational fear, it's panic. Right? A horse gets spooked not because there's real fear, real, real, real danger. Horses are actually quite brave in the face of danger. But a horse gets spooked if it maybe like is startled or hears a sudden loud noise, right? And then, and then it panics, takes off running in one direction, gets confused, goes in another direction. The rider tries to calm it down, can't, because the horse has become an irrational animal, panicked, afraid of everything, when there's actually nothing really to fear. That's the kind of of out-of-control fear that Paul is telling the Philippians to avoid. He's saying, look, don't get spooked by the loud noises of your opponents, okay? Don't panic. There's nothing there. He's not saying don't ever be afraid in the face of danger and persecution. We will be. He's saying, ultimately, you need to have confidence in God's absolute sovereignty over this persecution, and don't let your fear control you. Don't take off running like an irrational and fearful horse when danger comes around. That's the opposite of standing firm. That's the kind of fear that Paul is warning against. No confidence, no no courage. The opposite of standing firm and striving forward is backing down and running away. God's people, citizens of God's kingdom, are not supposed to be like that. So the last point brings us back to the first. The reason that we don't panic in the face of danger is because this fallen world is not where our true citizenship lies. We have not pinned our ultimate hopes on the things of this earth. And so we are empowered to stand firm. We, collectively, are empowered to stand firm and even to strive forward in the face of hardship or persecution or challenges. Because ultimately, there's nothing, nothing that this world can do to us. And that is why we will not fear in the face of danger. Let's pray together. Dear God, I pray that you would protect us from low expectations. From accepting less than the best than what you have for us, for not receiving all the blessing that you have for us. I pray that you would help us to heed this call, this command from the book of Philippians, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel. It's a high calling, but you wouldn't have called us to it if you weren't going to equip and empower us to live it out. And so I pray specifically for Ebenezer, I pray for any of our guests here who are going back to their home churches and I pray for those churches. I pray for your church around Canada and I pray for your church globally. I pray that we, your people, your churches spread around the world would live lives worthy of the gospel. I pray that you would enable us to stand firm no matter what comes our way that we would stand firm, not stand firm alone but stand firm together. And not only would your church be firm, but I pray that your church would strive forward. I pray that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ would continue to move forward, would continue to be proclaimed in places where the name of Christ hasn't yet been named. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. And as we go about doing that, standing firm and striving forward, I pray that you would help us not to be afraid. I pray that you would help us to remember that we have a firm and fixed citizenship in heaven and nothing and no one can take that away. The body they may kill, but God's truth, your truth, abideth still. In your name, amen.